Hey, everybody. Welcome to the DDNJ Author Insights Podcast. I'm Dr. Matthew Wapit, the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal Editor-in-Chief and Executive Director of the Utah State University Institute for Disability Research Policy and Practice. It's my privilege to host this podcast. This podcast is a relatively new undertaking, and it's called Author Insights because we really wanted to uh, create a forum where we could visit with the authors of articles in the journal and have a more informal opportunity to explore their article, to talk about their research, to understand a little bit more about what it is that they do. So kind of along those lines, we include some fun behind the scenes insight on the process of designing, implementing, analyzing, and writing up research. And then we talk a little bit about inclusion and accessibility and how these authors are trying to incorporate those aspects into their personal work as well. Um, another reason is that we really want to acknowledge that authors are more than just a name on the page. And we want to help you get to know the people behind the publication. We want you to get a better understanding of the many diverse voices who are working in the developmental disabilities field today. Um, so I think that maybe most importantly, the big reason we launched this podcast was that it increases the accessibility of the information that we publish in the journal. Um, the launch of the podcast is part of our ongoing commitment to increasing accessibility of the journal for a wider readership. Um, and we, we acknowledge that not everyone has time to sit down and, and read an entire article these days. And in some cases, people are unable to read an entire article. Uh, more and more people are choosing to get their information through podcasts, audiobooks, and alternative means. So the launch of this podcast means that you can access DDNJ's content while you're on the go. You can share it more readily across social media and other online platforms and it gives you a chance to just get a different perspective than just the written word on the page. Um, so anyway, we hope that this is useful and worthwhile and something that you'll find value in. Before we jump into today's show, I want to remind you to please be sure to subscribe to our podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Podbean, wherever you get your podcast. And as you hear on every podcast, please leave us a rating and a review on whatever platform you use. Um, that actually helps us improve and know um, what's working, what's not working. And we like to hear from, from our listeners. Also, please be sure to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. So uh, if you're interested in more information on the journal, you can learn more about the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal at our website, which is digitalcommons.usu.edu backslash DDNJ. And you can download uh, episodes of this podcast, podcast transcripts in English and Spanish, or learn more about our podcast guests at our uh, the Institute for Disabilities website. This is a longer URL, and I'm sorry about that, but it's IDRPP usu.edu backslash about 
backslash developmental hyphen disabilities hyphen network hyphen journal. So anyway, we will uh, be sure to embed these also in the show notes and uh, that should help you uh, get this additional information and additional resources. So without further ado, let's talk about our guest today. Today we are talking with Dr. Sarah Behrens from the Kansas University Juniper Gardens Children Project. Dr. Behrens is one of the authors on an article entitled Family Perspectives on Developmental Monitoring, a qualitative study that was published in the spring 2022 issue of the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal. In our conversation today, we focus on the importance of involving families in the developmental monitoring process and the remarkable depth of knowledge and experience that parents have regarding their children and the importance of respecting and, uh, and honoring parent perspectives. So um, Dr. Behrens is, as I mentioned, one of several authors on this article. Unfortunately, she was the only one who was gonna be able to join us today. The other authors on this article um, were Evan Dean and Marisol Torres, and unfortunately, they were unable to join us for the conversation, but we want to acknowledge their work on this article as well. So Dr. Behrens is a recent University of Kansas Medical Center graduate in therapeutic science, and she has a research emphasis on early identification practice for young children and their families. She has a master's in social work and is a former LEND trainee. Uh, she's been serving families and children with autism spectrum disorders for many years. In fact, Sarah was the project coordinator for the Autism Diagnostic Initiative with the Kansas State Department of Education's TASM project um, and the Kansas University Medical Center's Diagnostic Clinic for 10 years. Uh, currently, Sarah is a coach on the PRISM project at Kansas University's Juniper Gardens Children's Project. And when she is not working, she enjoys spending time with her two daughters and her husband traveling and thankfully listening to podcasts. So without further ado, I would like to present my conversation with Dr. Behrens. Welcome to Author Insights. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, we're excited to have Dr. Sarah Behrens with us from the University of Kansas. Sarah is the author on an article from the recent Developmental Disabilities Network Journal uh, Spring Issue. Uh, it's volume two, issue two on family perspectives on developmental monitoring, a qualitative study. So we're excited to visit with you today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Matt, for having me. Yeah. So one of the purposes of this podcast is to make research a little more accessible, but also put a personal face on it. So tell us a little bit about your background and the path that brought you to this developmental monitoring study. Well, by degree, I'm a social worker, a bachelor's and master's, and I was introduced to the AUCD network uh, through the KU Lens program during my uh, master's year when I was doing a clinical rotation. Um, I'm also a family member to a member, uh, to an uncle who has autism spectrum disorder. So I've always had an interest in the disability field and uh, KU Lend was a, a great match for me. Um, at the time when I was graduating, I had 
ample opportunities um, to learn just more about the disability field. Um, and upon graduating, at the time, the CDC was doing the Act Early Regional Summit, and they were hosting one in Kansas City. And I was able to participate at the Kansas table where we had leaders in autism discussing the needs and the gaps across the state. And if you're familiar with Kansas at all, it's very rural. Um, we have um, a lot of frontier areas um, and accessibility to services um, happens primarily on the eastern side of the state in Kansas City. And we do have more uh, down in the southern part of the state in the Wichita area. But other than that, everything's very remote. So one of the huge needs was timely and accessible diagnostic services for children at risk for autism spectrum disorder. Um, so from those conversations, collaboratively, the education-based technical assistance network through the Kansas State Department of Education teamed up with the Diagnostic Center at KU Med Center in Kansas City, and they created a position to oversee the training of educators and providers across the state working with kids who um, were at risk for ASD, um, specifically on the tools that they were using to diagnose. So I knew nothing about, I, I was, it's funny, I was sitting at the table and I heard what was going on, um, but I did not know what happened after everyone left that table. And upon graduating, I reached out um, to a few people to network, you know, to find a job and, they passed me along this position and they said, you need to apply. And so I, um, I did, and I had no idea what I was getting myself into and it was probably the best decision I made. So um, I spent 10 years as the project coordinator um, connecting families and teams through telemedicine to our clinicians at KU Med. Um, and they were able to get those timely and accessible diagnostic services so we were able to fill that gap um, in a very streamlined way. And it was a very um, collaborative project. And I loved my time on it, um, working across the state, really helping the children the most and the families, but also the educators and providers. It was uh, from a social work lens, it was very macro based, which uh, was right up my alley. Um, so my interest in early identification practices and developmental monitoring, it's kind of always been at the epicenter of my work. Um, it really came full circle these last five, six years um, as I was working on my PhD. I'm, I really took, you know, started to focus more on developmental monitoring in those early childhood years. Um, and I knew, you know, for the purpose of this study, I had to start with families. Um, they're the ones that know their children best. And I believe they're the ones we learn the most from when it comes to figuring out um, practices. Um, so that's, yeah, that's where I started with my research. Well, the, you were doing telehealth then well before the pandemic. Telehealth has become a huge deal since the COVID mm -hmm. pandemic, but it sounds like you were really trying to establish models and practices way before we even knew there was such a thing as COVID. Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it um when COVID hit and Zoom became very popular, I was like, well, I'm I'm familiar with that. I've been doing that. So it was really interesting to kind of see the headlines and the stories come out of it because uh yeah, it was a very familiar thing for me because we did it for a long time before anyone else um uh, was doing it as much as they are now. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's really it, that's kind of incredible, and it really positioned you, I think, in a, mm-hmm. a good place to help inform kind of the world we're now living in. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. So, give us a quick two-minute overview of your article, kind of the Cliff Notes version. So, um, our study, um, the main purpose was, was to really better understand family experiences with developmental monitoring, um, and I can go into more detail on that um, a little bit later. Um, So we wanted to show those experiences of families with medical professionals specific to developmental monitoring and then and then also how families obtain and develop the knowledge on child development. Um, So we interviewed family caregivers of children um, ages birth to five and then we analyzed the data um, from a qualitative lens using a thematic approach. And we ended up identifying three core themes. Um, The first was developmental monitoring with physicians is not common. Uh, The second was families use diverse supports to learn about child development, including community-based programs. And then third kind of emerged from the data, um, it was contextual factors, uh, which included like maternal health, work demands and demographic components, they influenced and shaped that child development experience those first few years of life within the family unit. Our our findings really indicated that there is a lot of variability in developmental monitoring practices. Um, There's also a huge need to include families, um, especially from the pediatric uh, physician lens. And then the importance to consider the individual and unique factors and needs of children and families uh, really stood out as well. So when you talk about developmental monitoring, a lot of um, folks may not be as familiar with, especially if they're working in more of the adult arena or school age or something else. Um, How is developmental monitoring different from what happens under like IDEA Part C, or is it the same thing? So developmental monitoring is more of an informal process Mm -hmm. um, and it's really um, guided through conversation, I would say, and observation. I think those are the two components of it. It's different from screening in that you're not using a formalized tool. Um, So when you talk about IDA Part C, they use evaluation tools to determine if services are needed. Developmental monitoring is something everybody could do you know, including families, and and they do, I think, I believe they do do it from a natural standpoint as a parent. Um, It's just conversing about it is the next step in that process. And the American Academy of Pediatrics do have six components specific to developmental monitoring to kind of structure it a little bit more for physicians. I have yet to find, so to speak, my dissertation goes into looking at home visiting practices. And from that mm-hmm. research, I did not find recommendations for home visiting programs for developmental monitoring. So mm-hmm. we have, um, it's mentioned, and there's a big push for screening, um, which kind of led me to this study to begin with. 
Um, but I think we have a, a little ways to go to just get recommendations in place across national organizations that work with our young children and families. Because right now, uh, physicians are the only ones that have those recommendations in place. Right, right. So, and you've, you've addressed this a little bit, but, you know, if developmental monitoring is that informal process of, you know, tracking a child's mm -hmm. development and everything, and maybe this is a this question answers itself. Why is family involvement so important in that process? <laughs> well, they <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound like a great question at this point no. in the conversation. <laughs> you know, but some people may um, you know some people may believe that that is it is an important question. It's one that um, I think we continue, at least in my work, and I know other researchers that I work with, we re-emphasize, you know, families know their children. Um, they are the source of information of their child's development. And, you know, what the families are seeing with their kids is, I think, the utmost important um, information that we can gather as perhaps providers to figure out, you know, is there something going on? Do we need to dig deeper? Or is this typical development and, you know, the kids just developing in their own, own way. So I, that family involvement is critical. So a lot of the work that you're doing by focusing on families is very similar to kind of the trend that's happening within disability in general is shifting that, that sort of locus of control from the professionals to the people with the lived experience, whether that's self-advocacy or whether that's family experience or anything else, it's really valuing and trying to elevate that lived experience as opposed to just relying on the professionals to tell you when something's quote unquote wrong. Correct, yes. So a lot of the research that happens, I'm sure, well, we know this, especially when it's medical research, is quantitative, right? And we know the gold standard for quantitative research is sort of the, the controlled, the randomized controlled trial, right? And so again, the idea that a lot of the research in this area is probably quantitative and so finding a qualitative mm -hmm. studies a little bit odd. What insights does the qualitative data that you collected provide that isn't usually found in sort of these quantitative studies that are done. Does that make I sense? I know that's a surprise. Yeah. I added that one. <laughs> no, I think it's a great question. I have a one word answer to get me started. I think the detail is in the qualitative study. While I'm a new researcher, and this was one of my first studies, I was really taken back by the willingness of the participants to share through the interviews and the level of uh, information they were able to provide was so valuable. Um, and I don't think I would have gotten that through like a survey, for instance, no. um, from a quantitative perspective. And so I think that level of detail just really provided rich context to the questions that we were asking um, and ultimately led to the um, the themes that we identified, which answered our research question. So that ended up, that to me is what really stood out from that qualitative lens um, was just 
the context and detail that we were able to obtain from the interviews. Well, it is amazing that it's taken us this long to recognize that that lived experience is just mm -hmm. so incredibly informative and we've overlooked it for so long. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and I will speak to just my perspective from working with the participants I had in the study. And granted, it was a very small sample size, but the willingness, I mean, I was able, I had a wait list of parents who wanted to take part in it. And so the fact that they wanted their voices heard and they wanted to share their stories just really, it really did stand out um, as a something that we really took away from the study from a qualitative perspective. So that's that's incredible. I mean, usually we yeah. hear stories of trying to get larger sample sizes because there's not enough people who want to participate and having yeah. a wait list. That's amazing. Yeah. No, it was, and for the purpose of what I was trying to do, I had to keep it on the smaller side, but I, I now know that it's possible to do a much larger study, knowing that I, I don't think I'd have any problem finding families to speak to their experiences. So as you were going through this and kind of doing, doing the research, were there any big surprises as you were collecting and analyzing the data? The biggest one, Matt, was that parents know a lot, <laughs> and I, we can't take them for granted. They know so much information, um, not like especially about their children, but even as a parent, you know, um, they were able to speak to, you know, developmental milestones and child development and their experiences through the lens of a parent, um, and for me. And, and even the, the team of master students that I was working with, I, if, if they were, if Marisol was on, I think she would be able to speak to this, but we were able to piece together what they were saying with, you know, child development and map it, if that makes sense. So it, we were able to use our child developmental background and knowledge and be, you know, confirm like, oh my gosh, these parents know a lot. Um, and we were talking with parents from all different socioeconomic backgrounds, ethnicities. And so that really spoke out to us. I think the other big surprise, you know, we had a, a focus on finding out how the relationship was with their medical providers when it came to developmental monitoring. And all the families really spoke highly of their physicians that they worked with and had really good working relationships with them but they did not rely on them for education and information about child development. They relied on other resources. So that to me really spoke to, you know, wow, we've got these great recommendations out for doctors um, to practice, but there is a, a disconnect there um, between child development and those well child visits that are taking place with the families and children. Um, so I would say those, those really stood out. Um, I there was one other surprise as I was kind of going back through my notes because I kind of took informal notes as I was collecting information and we were analyzing the data. I think the other system that could play a huge role 
in um, monitoring development is the childcare system. So um, some of it, some people refer to it as childcare or daycare programs. Mm -hmm. And we found that of the families who had children in daily childcare programs, there was minimal involvement um, with developmental monitoring um, from that system perspective. So huh. those are kind of our big surprises from the study. That's, I mean, I mean but those are incredibly informative. Um, yeah. I mean, especially as you think about, right, how you, how we better create systems that are more coordinated across the different contexts where children are growing up. I mean, that's, that's really amazing. So kind of, you know, reading the reports, one thing, but going through the process, there's always, event. It, well, the research in itself is an event. It's a process. It's a, it, there's memorable things that occur. And so part of the purpose of this podcast is to kind of put a face on that research process. So is there a memorable story or event that occurred as you worked on this project? Well, well the most memorable was that COVID hit right <laughs> in the middle of data collection. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I had, I, I thought about this one because I, um, so to that process, we had a big life-changing event occur, you know, for everyone involved. Um, and at the time I was collecting data, I was doing the interviews in person at the family's home. So one of the biggest things for me was to be accessible to the families. And um, so I offered a, you know, a variety of ways to collect the information, but in person was, you know, our preference. And yeah. so I was traveling to the family's home to do the interviews. Um, and so when COVID hit, we had to shift um, and we had to shift fast. Um, and so that was, that's probably one of the most memorable um, things that occurred. Cause looking back, even when I talked to um, Evan, who, who is also an author on the paper, you know, he was in the midst of other research projects, but he, he was amazed at how adaptable our families were to move to Zoom and phone interviews. Um, they had no problems doing that and they stayed committed. I mean, even with, I would say the final five interviews I had, I mean, there were kids in the background, you know, they were at home um, taking in this new life event uh, that, now we, here we are, you know, two years later, um, that has been life-changing. So, um, but yeah, the family stuck with us and we were fortunate to get all the data and, um, and to move forward in analysis. So yeah, we were very grateful for yeah. everybody's contribution. Yeah, no, I mean, and you're lucky. I know a lot of research ground to a halt when yes. the pandemic hit. And so mm -hmm. the fact that you could adapt and keep going is really pretty incredible. Yeah. And our, our IRB, uh, that was the one thing we were a little nervous about. Um, they approved us moving to phone and Zoom pretty fast. So uh, we, yeah, that was because I know many researchers kind of ran into that as a speed bump, you know, as they were collecting data because uh, sure. IRBs were figuring out, you know, how do we best 
work around that. So, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, that's a whole other rabbit trail we could. Find. Yes. <laughs> IRB responses to the pandemic. Yeah, that's <laughs> Maybe right. we'll do a special edition, a special episode on that, and we can all compare <laughs> it. <laughs> so, kind of, we've covered a, a wide range of things, and you know, although you've given us a summary of the article, what what is the take home message from your article? What what is it that you think that you want readers to remember? I think the number one thing that I'd love for readers to take away is that families matter. Their voice matters, their experiences matter, their opinions matter, um, especially when it uh, comes to um, their children, uh, whether they're typical developing or have you know, a child with a dis- disability. Um, I think our results really speak to the valuable insight that families provide Um, not only to developmental monitoring, but really any topic um, um, around child development. Um, I think another big thing is contextual factors really play a role in family dynamics um, and ultimately that child development experience. So from a visual perspective, I kind of think of that trickle down effect, right? If you have a parent that is facing some challenges um, within the family unit, it can play a role and impact, you know, their children and, you know, their, that phase of development that their child might be in. Um, and that looks different across the board. Um, so I really think contextual factors are something that we need to um, really pay more attention to and learn more about as we talk to more families in research. Um, I think those individual factors, whether it's physical or mental or emotional needs, um, they need to be considered, uh, especially in the early identification practices arena that we're trying to improve for families and young children. Well, I think, I think, well, this has come up multiple times in this conversation, but I really do appreciate that, that notion that it's the families and the context that matters. It is, it is ironic, as you brought up earlier, that a lot of times our interventions are focused on the professionals, because that's the easiest to target. Um, And frequently the biggest impact is coming through the families, their lived experience and in the settings where they live and learn and work and play. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So everybody who does this work has a story um, and has a reason why they do it. You know, nobody goes into the disability field because they stumbled into it. So (laughs) what motivates you to do this work? Currently, um, I think my my own children, now that I'm a parent, um, my own children, they are they are the future. And um, it is so vital. And I, I've learned just from personal experience that having a strong foundation in place for them, and that means the strong, a strong support system around that family unit. Um, really can lead to positive developmental outcomes. And I speak now, you know, after working in the field for 
quite some time now. If we put more into supporting those families from the beginning, I think the trajectories of our kids developmentally and into their school years can can look a lot different. Um, and now I'm just going to speak from just in, I think from a societal perspective right now, especially what we've experienced the last few years and, and even the, even the last few weeks, Matt, um, I think it's, it's showing that we need more supports for families who have young children. Um, our society as a whole has a ways to go. And um, that really motivates me. I, I know that my, my time will come to an end at some point, but I hope that, you know, my motivation in this work can leave an impact um, to those foundational systems so that families just feel equipped, you know, families with unique needs, families with children with a disability, families of all ethnicities, um, to really have that knowledge and the support to best support their children as they go through those developmental phases. No, I think, yeah, that, that is certainly the takeaway that I got from your article. And, I, and it's coming up over and over here. It's just that family unit is so incredibly important to mm -hmm. the outcomes for our kids. I, I mean, I think any parent knows that. Fortunately, I don't think that that's always reflected in the research. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's so what, yeah, that's what I'd like to see moving forward. So yeah, oh, yeah, no, great. So um, last question here. Um, one of the focuses of the journal, again, in the podcast, and some of the mm -hmm. things that we do with our plain language summary is to make research more accessible. And so we like to end with a question and ask, what is one thing that you've been doing? to make your work and we'll, we, that's work writ large. It could be your workplace. It could be your process. It could be your relationships, but what's one thing you've been doing to make your work more inclusive and accessible? Yeah, I think this is a great question. Um, and it's one that I'm, it's like one of those top five questions when I get started on something like, you know, how can we include more people? Uh, I think, for me personally, as a social worker, and I mentioned this earlier, I kind of take a macro approach to my work. And so I have always worked hard to be inclusive of all the systems or the people or the organizations surrounding a young child. So as I look at my current work and even into the future, that is something that's really important to me. Like, how can we learn about developmental monitoring and early identification across systems and providers and different organizations to ensure that there is a cohesive um, approach and that it's a cohesive across systems and those systems that all kids are touching, if that makes sense. I think that's one of the biggest things for me for that um, inclusivity um, around this work. And I and then just inclusion of of people and participants in the research, you know, um, broadening that. And I think at, now that I'm kind of on the other side and starting my quote unquote new career as a researcher, um, I think it's 
really important to figure out innovative uh, recruitment strategies to ensure that all people are, have an opportunity um, to participate in research um, because I think there's value in it and I think they would see value in it as well. It's just we on the research end need to figure out how can we market it in a way that pulls more uh, people in to participate. No, I really, I really love that because it is, the research is only as good as the people who participate in it. And if it's limited to just folks who have access or have privilege or have connections, Mm -hmm. then the data that we have is not reflective of what's actually happening out there. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's such an incredibly important point. So thank you. Thank you. So I think that's the end of my questions. I don't know. Is there, Oscar, do you have any last thoughts, Sarah? No, I, I think you touched on everything, Matt. I mean, yeah, this is a good summary of the article. Cool. Well, and now we have a bit more of a personal face behind it. We understand mm-hmm. a little bit about you and your process. And I think that's what I love doing this because it really does give you a whole different perspective. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. I'm excited. Thanks for listening to the DDNJ Author Insights podcast. We appreciate your support and your interest in our work. Please be sure to subscribe to our podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. And again, as I mentioned earlier, please leave us a rating and a review and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. That helps this get out to a wider audience and it helps us know what you like and don't like. Um, Again, you can learn more about the Developmental Disabilities Network Journal at the journal website, which is digitalcommons, all one word, usu.edu backslash ddnj. And you can download podcast transcripts in English and Spanish and learn more about our guests at uh, the Institute for Disabilities webpage, which is idrpp.usu.edu. So I want to acknowledge the many people who go into making this podcast happen. Uh, The podcast is a production of the Utah State University Institute for Disability Research Policy and Practice. Utah's University Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities, and this podcast is produced by Dr. Alex Shewal with transcript and translation support from Mary Ellen Heiner and Martha Reyes. Thanks again for listening today, and in the words of Margaret Mead, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed individuals can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. Have a great day, everybody.